Section 7 of A Theological-Political Treatise by Baruch Benedict de Spinoza Translated by Robert Harvey Munro Elvis This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto Chapter 7, Part 1 Of the Interpretation of Scripture When people declare, as all are ready to do, that the Bible is the Word of God, teaching man true blessedness and the way of salvation, they evidently do not mean what they say. For the masses take no pains at all to live according to Scripture. And we see most people endeavouring to hawk about their own commentaries as the Word of God, and giving their best efforts under the guise of religion, to compelling others to think as they do. We generally see, I say, theologians anxious to learn how to wring their inventions and sayings out of the sacred text, and to fortify them with divine authority. Such persons never display less scruple or more zeal than when they are interpreting Scripture or the mind of the Holy Ghost. If we ever see them perturbed, it is not that they fear to attribute some error to the Holy Spirit and to stray from the right path, but that they are afraid to be convicted of error by others, and thus to overthrow and bring into contempt their own authority. But if men really believed what they verbally testify of Scripture, they would adopt quite a different plan of life. Their minds would not be agitated by so many contentions nor so many hatreds, and they would cease to be excited by such a blind and rash passion for interpreting the sacred writings and excogitating novelties in religion. On the contrary, they would not dare to adopt, as the teaching of Scripture, anything which they could not plainly deduce therefrom. Lastly, those sacrilegious persons who have dared in several passages to interpolate the Bible would have shrunk from so great a crime and would have stayed their sacrilegious hands. Ambition and unscrupulousness have waxed so powerful that religion is thought to consist not so much in respecting the writings of the Holy Ghost as in defending human commentaries, so that religion is no longer identified with charity but with spreading discord and propagating insensate hatred disguised under the name of zeal for the Lord and eager ardour. To these evils we must add superstition, which teaches men to despise reason and nature, and only to admire and venerate that which is repugnant to both. Whence it is not wonderful that for the sake of increasing the admiration and veneration felt for Scripture, men strive to explain it so as to make it appear to contradict, as far as possible, both one and the other. Thus they dream that most profound mysteries lie hid in the Bible, and weary themselves out in the investigation of these absurdities to the neglect of what is useful. Every result of their diseased imagination they attribute to the Holy Ghost, and strive to defend with the utmost zeal and passion, for it is an observed fact that men employ their reason to defend conclusions arrived at by reason, but conclusions arrived at by the passions are defended by the passions. If we could separate ourselves from the crowd and escape from theological prejudices, instead of rashly accepting human commentaries for divine documents, we must consider the true method of interpreting Scripture and dwell upon it at some length, for if we remain in ignorance of this, we cannot know, certainly, what the Bible and the Holy Spirit wish to teach. I may sum up the matter by saying that the method of interpreting Scripture does not widely differ from the method of interpreting nature. In fact, it is almost the same. 
for as the interpretation of nature consists in the examination of the history of nature and therefrom deducing definitions of natural phenomena on certain fixed axioms so scriptural interpretation proceeds by the examination of scripture and inferring the intention of its authors as a legitimate conclusion from its fundamental principles by working in this manner every one will always advance without danger of error that is if they admit no principles for interpreting scripture and discussing its contents save such as they find in scripture itself and will be able with equal security to discuss what surpasses our understanding and what is known by the natural light of reason in order to make clear that such a method is not only correct but is also the only one advisable and that it agrees with that employed in interpreting nature i must remark that scripture very often treats of matters which cannot be deduced from principles known to reason for it is chiefly made up of narratives and revelation the narratives generally contain miracles that is as we have shown in the last chapter relations of extraordinary natural occurrences adapted to the opinions and judgment of the historians who recorded them the revelations also were adapted to the opinions of the prophets as we showed in chapter two and in themselves surpassed human comprehension therefore the knowledge of all these that is of nearly the whole contents of scripture must be sought from scripture alone even as the knowledge of nature is sought from nature as for the moral doctrines which are also contained in the bible they may be demonstrated from received axioms but we cannot prove in the same manner that scripture intended to teach them this can only be learned from scripture itself if we would bear unprejudiced witness to the divine origin of scripture we must prove solely on its own authority that it teaches true moral doctrines for by such means alone can its divine origin be demonstrated as we have shown that the certitude of the prophets depended chiefly on their having minds turned towards what is just and good therefore we ought to have proof of their possessing this quality before we repose faith in them from miracles god's divinity cannot be proved as i have already shown and need not now repeat for miracles could be wrought by false prophets wherefore the divine origin of scripture must consist solely in its teaching true virtue but we must come to our conclusion simply on scriptural grounds for if we were unable to do so we could not unless strongly prejudiced accept the bible and bear witness to its divine origin our knowledge of scripture must then be looked for in scripture only lastly scripture does not give us definitions of things any more than nature does therefore such definitions must be sought in the latter case from the diverse workings of nature in the former case from the various narratives about the given subject which occur in the bible the universal rule then in interpreting scripture is to accept nothing as an authoritative scriptural statement which we do not perceive very clearly when we examine it in the light of its history what i mean by its history and what should be the chief points elucidated i will now explain the history of a scriptural statement comprises one the nature and properties of the language in which the books of the bible were written and in which their authors were accustomed to speak we shall thus be able to investigate every expression by comparison with common conversational usages now all the writers both of the old testament and the new were hebrews therefore a knowledge of the hebrew language is before all things necessary not only for the comprehension of the old testament 
which was written in that tongue, but also of the new. For although the latter was published in other languages, yet its characteristics are Hebrew. 2. An analysis of each book and arrangement of its contents under heads, so that we may have at hand the various texts which treat of a given subject. Lastly, a note of all the passages which are ambiguous or obscure, or which seem mutually contradictory. I call passages clear or obscure according as their meaning is inferred, easily or with difficulty in relation to the context, not according as their truth is perceived easily or the reverse by reason. We are at work not on the truth of passages, but solely on their meaning. We must take special care when we are in search of the meaning of a text not to be led away by our reason in so far as it is founded on principles of natural knowledge, to say nothing of prejudices. In order not to confound the meaning of a passage with its truth, we must examine it solely by means of the signification of the words, or by a reason acknowledging no foundation but scripture. I will illustrate my meaning by an example. The words of Moses, God is a fire, and God is jealous, are perfectly clear, so long as we regard merely the signification of the words, and I therefore reckon them among the clear passages, though in relation to reason and truth they are most obscure. Still, although the literal meaning is repugnant to the natural light of reason, nevertheless, if it cannot be clearly overruled on grounds and principles derived from its scriptural history, it, that is, the literal meaning, must be the one retained. And contrarywise, if these passages literally interpreted are found to clash with principles derived from scripture, though such literal interpretation were in absolute harmony with reason, they must be interpreted in a different manner that is, metaphorically. If we would know whether Moses believed God to be a fire or not, we must on no account decide the question on grounds of the reasonableness or the reverse of such an opinion, but must judge solely by the other opinions of Moses which are on record. In the present instance, as Moses says in several other passages, that God has no likeness to any visible thing, whether in heaven or in earth, or in the water, either all such passages must be taken metaphorically or else the one before us must be so explained. However, as we should depart as little as possible from the literal sense, we must first ask whether this text, God is a fire, admits of any but the literal meaning, that is, whether the word fire ever means anything besides ordinary natural fire. If no such second meaning can be found, the text must be taken literally, however repugnant to reason it may be, and all the other passages, though in complete accordance with reason, must be brought into harmony with it. If the verbal expressions would not admit of being thus harmonized, we should have to set them down as irreconcilable, and suspend our judgment concerning them. However, as we find the name fire applied to anger and jealousy, see Job chapter 31 verse 12, we can thus easily reconcile the words of Moses and legitimately conclude that the two propositions, God is a fire and God is jealous, are in meaning identical. Further, as Moses clearly teaches that God is jealous, and nowhere states that God is without passions or emotions, we must evidently infer that Moses held this doctrine himself, or at any rate, that he wished to teach it, nor must we refrain, because such a belief seems contrary to reason. For, as we have shown, we cannot arrest the meaning of texts to suit the dictates of our reason or our preconceived opinions. The whole knowledge of the Bible must be sought solely from itself. 3. Lastly, such a history should relate the environment of all the prophetic books extant, 
that is the life the conduct and the studies of the author of each book who he was what was the occasion and the epoch of his writing whom did he write for and in what language further it should inquire into the fate of each book how it was first received into whose hands it fell how many different versions there were of it by whose advice was it received into the bible and lastly how all the books now universally accepted as sacred were united into a single whole all such information should as i have said be contained in the history of scripture for in order to know what statements are set forth as laws and what as moral precepts it is important to be acquainted with the life the conduct and the pursuits of their author moreover it becomes easier to explain a man's writings in proportion as we have more intimate knowledge of his genius and temperament further that we may not confound precepts which are eternal with those which served only a temporary purpose or were only meant for a few we should know what was the occasion the time the age in which each book was written and to what nation it was addressed lastly we should have knowledge on the other points i have mentioned in order to be sure in addition to the authenticity of the work that it has not been tampered with by sacrilegious hands or whether errors can have crept in and if so whether they have been corrected by men sufficiently skilled and worthy of credence all these things should be known that we may not be led away by blind impulse to accept whatever is thrust on our notice instead of only that which is sure and indisputable now when we are in possession of this history of scripture and have finally decided that we assert nothing as prophetic doctrine which does not directly follow from such history or which is not clearly deducible from it then i say it will be time to gird ourselves for the task of investigating the mind of the prophets and of the holy spirit but in this further arguing also we shall require a method very like that employed in interpreting nature from her history as in the examination of natural phenomena we try first to investigate what is most universal and common to all nature such for instance as motion and rest and their laws and rules which nature always observes and through which she continually works and then we proceed to what is less universal so too in the history of scripture we first seek for that which is most universal and serves for the basis and foundation of all scripture a doctrine in fact that is commended by all the prophets as eternal and most profitable to all men for example that god is one and that he is omnipotent that he alone should be worshipped that he has a care for all men and that he especially loves those who adore him and love their neighbour as themselves etc these and similar doctrines i repeat scripture everywhere so clearly and expressly teaches that no one was ever in doubt of its meaning concerning them the nature of god his manner of regarding and providing for things and similar doctrines scripture nowhere teaches professedly and as eternal doctrine on the contrary we have shown that the prophets themselves did not agree on the subject therefore we must not lay down any doctrine as scriptural on such subjects though it may appear perfectly clear on rational grounds from a proper knowledge of this universal doctrine of scripture we must then proceed to other doctrines less universal but which nevertheless have regard to the general conduct of life and flow from all the universal doctrine like rivulets from a source such are all particular external manifestations of true virtue which need a given occasion for their exercise 
whatever is obscure or ambiguous on such points in scripture must be explained and defined by its universal doctrine with regard to contradictory instances we must observe the occasion and the time in which they were written for instance when christ says blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted we do not know from the actual passage what sort of mourners are meant as however christ afterwards teaches that we should have care for nothing save only for the kingdom of god and his righteousness which is commended as the highest good see matthew chapter 6 verse 33 it follows that by mourners he only meant those who mourn for the kingdom of god and righteousness neglected by man for this would be the only cause of mourning to those who love nothing but the divine kingdom and justice and who evidently despise the gifts of fortune so too when christ says but if a man strike you on the right cheek turn to him the left also and the words which follow if he had given such a command as a lawgiver to judges he would thereby have abrogated the law of moses but this he expressly says he did not do matthew chapter 5 verse 17 wherefore we must consider who was the speaker what was the occasion and to whom were the words addressed now christ said that he did not ordain laws as a legislator but inculcated precepts as a teacher inasmuch as he did not aim at correcting outward actions so much as the frame of mind further these words were spoken to men who were oppressed who lived in a corrupt commonwealth on the brink of ruin where justice was utterly neglected the very doctrine inculcated here by christ just before the destruction of the city was also taught by jeremiah before the first destruction of jerusalem that is in similar circumstances as we see from lamentations chapter three verses twenty five to thirty now as such teaching was only set forth by the prophets in times of oppression and was even then never laid down as a law and as on the other hand moses who did not write in times of oppression but mark this strove to found a well-ordered commonwealth while condemning envy and hatred of one's neighbour yet ordained that an eye should be given for an eye it follows more clearly from these purely scriptural grounds that this precept of christ and jeremiah concerning submission to injuries was only valid in places where justice is neglected and in a time of oppression but does not hold good in a well-ordered state in a well-ordered state where justice is administered every one is bound if he would be accounted just to demand penalties before the judge see leviticus chapter 5 verse 1 not for the sake of vengeance leviticus chapter 19 verses 17 and 18 but in order to defend justice and his country's laws and to prevent the wicked rejoicing in their wickedness all this is plainly in accordance with reason i might cite many other examples in the same manner but i think the foregoing are sufficient to explain my meaning and the utility of this method and this is all my present purpose hitherto we have only shown how to investigate those passages of scripture which treat of practical conduct and which therefore are more easily examined for on such subjects there was never really any controversy among the writers of the bible the purely speculative passages cannot be so easily traced to their real meaning the way becomes narrower for as the prophets differed in matters speculative among themselves and the narratives are in great measure adapted to the prejudices of each age we must not on any account infer the intention of one prophet from clearer passages in the writings of another nor must we so explain his meaning unless it is perfectly plain 
that the two prophets were at one in the matter. How are we to strive at the intention of the prophets in such cases, I will briefly explain. Here, too, we must begin from the most universal proposition, inquiring first from the most clear scriptural statements what is the nature of prophecy or revelation, and wherein does it consist. Then we must proceed to miracles, and so on to whatever is most general, till we come to the opinions of a particular prophet, and, at last, to the meaning of a particular revelation, prophecy, history, or miracle. We have already pointed out that great caution is necessary not to confound the mind of a prophet or historian with the mind of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the matter. Therefore, I need not dwell further on the subject. I would, however, here remark concerning the meaning of revelation that the present method only teaches us what the prophets really saw or heard, not what they desire to signify or represent by symbols. The latter may be guessed at but cannot be inferred with certainty from scriptural premises. We have thus shown the plan for interpreting scripture, and have at the same time demonstrated that it is the one and surest way of investigating its true meaning. I am willing indeed to admit that those persons, if any such there be, would be more absolutely certainly right, who have received either a trustworthy tradition or an assurance from the prophets themselves, such as is claimed by the Pharisees or who have a pontiff gifted with infallibility in the interpretation of Scripture, such as the Roman Catholics boast. But as we can never be perfectly sure, either of such a tradition or of the authority of the pontiff, we cannot found any certain conclusion on either. The one is denied by the oldest sect of Christians, the other by the oldest sect of Jews. Indeed, if we consider the series of years to mention no other point accepted by the Pharisees from their rabbis, during which time they say they have handed down the tradition from Moses, we shall find that it is not correct, as I show elsewhere. Therefore, such a tradition should be received with extreme suspicion, and although, according to our method, we are bound to consider as uncorrupted the tradition of the Jews, namely the meaning of the Hebrew words which we receive from them, we may accept the latter while retaining our doubts about the former. No one has ever been able to change the meaning of a word in ordinary use, though many have changed the meaning of a particular sentence. Such a proceeding would be most difficult, for whoever attempted to change the meaning of a word would be compelled at the same time to explain all the authors who employed it, each according to his temperament and intention, or else with consummate cunning to falsify them. Further, the masses and the learned alike preserve language, but it is only the learned who preserve the meaning of particular sentences and books. Thus we may easily imagine that the learned have a very rare book in their power, might change or corrupt the meaning of a sentence in it, but they could not alter the signification of the words. Moreover, if anyone wanted to change the meaning of a common word, he would not be able to keep up the change among posterity, or in common parlance or writing. For these and such like reasons, we may readily conclude that it would never enter into the mind of anyone to corrupt a language, though the intention of a writer may often have been falsified by changing his phrases or interpreting them amiss. As then our method, based on the principle that the knowledge of Scripture must be sought from itself alone, is the sole true one, we must evidently renounce any knowledge which it cannot furnish for the complete understanding of Scripture. I will now point out its difficulties and shortcomings, 
which prevent our gaining a complete and assured knowledge of the sacred text. Its first great difficulty consists in its requiring a thorough knowledge of the Hebrew language. Where is such knowledge to be obtained? The men of old who employed the Hebrew tongue have left none of the principles and bases of their language to posterity. We have from them absolutely nothing in the way of dictionary, grammar, or rhetoric. Now the Hebrew nation has lost all its grace and beauty, as one would expect after the defeats and persecutions it has gone through, and has only retained certain fragments of its language and of a few books. Nearly all the names of the fruits, birds, and fishes, and many other words have perished in the wear and tear of time. Further, the meaning of many nouns and verbs which occur in the Bible are either utterly lost or are subjects of dispute. And not only are these gone, but we are lacking in a knowledge of Hebrew phraseology. The devouring tooth of time has destroyed nearly all the phrases and turns of expression peculiar to the Hebrews, so that we know them no more. Therefore, we cannot investigate as we would all the meanings of a sentence by the use of the language. And there are many phrases of which the meaning is most obscure or altogether inexplicable, though the component words are perfectly plain. To this impossibility of tracing the history of the Hebrew language must be added its particular nature and composition. These give rise to so many ambiguities that it is impossible to find a method which would enable us to gain a certain knowledge of all the statements in Scripture. In addition to the sources of ambiguities common to all languages, there are many peculiar to Hebrew. These I think it worth while to mention. Firstly, an ambiguity often arises in the Bible from our mistaking one letter for another similar one. The Hebrews divide the letters of the alphabet into five classes, according to the five organs of the mouth employed in pronouncing them, namely the lips, the tongue, the teeth, the palate, and the throat. For instance, alpha, get, chagain, ch are called gutturals, and are barely distinguishable by any sign that we know one from the other. El, which signifies two, is often taken for hegal, which signifies above, and vice versa. Hence, sentences are often rendered rather ambiguous or meaningless. A second difficulty arises from the multiplied meaning of conjunctions and adverbs. For instance, vow serves promiscuously for a particle of union or of separation, meaning, and, but, because, however, then. Ki has seven or eight meanings, namely, wherefore, although, if, when, inasmuch, as, because, a burning, etc., and so on with almost all particles. The third very fertile source of doubt is the fact that Hebrew verbs in the indicative mood lack the present, the past imperfect, the pluperfect, the future perfect, and other tenses most frequently employed in other languages. In the imperative and infinitive moods they are wanting in all except the present, and a subjunctive mood does not exist. Now, although all these defects in moods and tenses may be supplied by certain fundamental rules of the language with ease and even elegance, the ancient writers evidently neglected such rules altogether and employed indifferently future for present and past and vice versa, past for future, and also indicative for imperative and subjunctive, with the result of considerable confusion. End of section 7, read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.